Good evening. Good evening. Good evening. It's 4 p.m. Stand up. It's count time. Time for every man and woman to stand up and be counted. Welcome to another edition of Pound Time Podcast. I am Brother L. Diazobra, formerly named Lyman White. Thank you for joining us today. Today we got a very special guest, a beautiful, awesome young lady who's going to bring a lot of knowledge, history, and great information to you. I've been knowing her for quite some time. Uh, she's a friend, but I've been under a, a wonderful husband, Nash. We got here on our, this is going to be one of our legendary segments called The Living Legends. She's, she's a legend amongst many of us here. We got here Dr. Joyce Marie Jackson. Welcome, Doc. Thank you. Thanks for having me on the program. Well, you're welcome. And we, we're excited about you, about your history, uh, all the knowledge that you can bring forward. And I don't even know where to get started at. But I know you. your history starts back at this big old school and university they call Southern Lab, connected to Southern University. <laughs> In the last couple of months, there was a great honor that came to you. You was selected to elected. be the, <laughs> elected. elected, not for no political <laughs> office, right? No. <laughs> but it requires a little pot of being a little political. <laughs> but she is the first of her gender to be the first female chair of her department at LSU. What, what department is that? Now? Department of Geography and Anthropology. What is that department? You know, we don't, most people don't really know what, what y'all do over there. <laughs> well, it's in the complex, uh, geoscience complex in Howard Russell, and uh, we're a joint department of geography and anthropology. And of course, geography is, you know, the study of so many aspects of land, and anthropology is so many aspects of humans. And there are certain sub-disciplines to each one. And uh, in our department, we have, um, um, like I said, various subdisciplines, and so it's sort of a complex department because of that, and it's because of the combination of the two disciplines. But it works well; it's a good marriage. Uh, so but we have separate PhD programs, and you know, separate bachelor's and master's programs. So um, we separate in a way, but in another way, we're certainly close together. Yeah, that's a part of our, that's yes. a part of geography. Yeah, we have a climate center, we have a regional climate center and the written climate center, and we have the state climatologists. Okay. <laughs> so that's a big part of the department? Oh, yes, and um, they get large grants, and uh, so they, they're big, yeah, in big impact, not only for our department, but for the college. college and we're in the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. So it's it's a huge impact, and they also they don't want to study hurricanes and those type of things too, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Disaster science is is under there. It's a subdiscipline. You know, now I know I, I know that's not your department, but it, uh, it's interesting that most hurricanes come off the coast of Africa, mm-hmm. and but they, you never hear a hurricane with an African name though. <laughs> That's something to think about. Because <laughs> they all they named the hurricanes from here. Yeah, they, yeah. But they come they, off the coast of Africa. <laughs> but, you know, that's interesting. They give them Hispanic name, they give them German name, they give everything. And that's kind of interesting. How long has that department been on LSU campus? Mm, about 93 years. 93 years. Yes. So you are the first female and I don't like saying it, but they say women of color. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> to be to chair that department. Mm, that's correct. 
in 93 years. So you're saying that field was dominated by men for many, yes. many years? Yes. I guess like most other fields. For many, many years. No, okay. Yeah. For all of those years. What What is your, you also told me that you was, how long you been in LSU? Well, it depends. <laughs> you weren't <laughs> taking my years that I was a student. Oh, yeah, well, that's I, interesting. Yeah, you was a student have, at um, LSU. Yeah, I have two degrees from LSU. I'm a dual uh, alumni, you might say. I have a bachelor's and a master's from LSU. And um, so I, it took me six years. I had uh, four years to get my bachelor's, two years for the master's program, and I was in music school. So, yeah, how did I get from music to... <laughs> you know, most people ask that question. How did you get from music to anthropology? Well, actually, I went on to Indiana University for my Ph.D., and um, I was able to earn a degree in folklore and ethnomusicology. And of course, you know, we had anthropology courses too. So a folklorist and ethnomusicologist can also work in an anthropology department or music or English, you know, but I chose the cultural side and I do, um, you know, folklore and ethnomusicology. And I basically look at myself as a cultural ethnographer because we all have to do field work. That's the major part of the discipline in anthropology, um, geography, folklore, ethnomusicology, that's a major part of what we do is field work. Well, all that sounds good, but I don't know what none of that is. Most of you probably don't, need, don't know either. Let's talk about something we all can, can connect together with. So you also, went, you attended LSU, what year was that? I started at LSU in 1968 as a freshman. 68. LSU was just starting to integrate. Four years after integration. And but you grew up on where you where'd you grow up? I grew up at the foot of Southern you might as well say at the foot of Southern University. I went to Southern University Laboratory School and we lived right off the campus, uh, probably a mile from the campus. So I and my mother was an administrator, professor and administrator at Southern University. So I grew up, I might say, on the campus of Southern University. And so you went to Southern Lab. Right there at Southern University, but yes. you did not attend the these Southern University. No, not the university. I didn't. <laughs> Why not? Well, I had um, I lived on the campus because my mother was working there, and I was interested in music, and I was attending everything just about the music school had as far as performances, recitals all sorts of concerts and everything. I knew a number of the professors. Um, I didn't take, uh, I, I took uh, piano with uh, uh, Mr. DeBose, which was one of the major pian pianists uh, at the university. And my sister studied with another professor there at the university, so uh, Myrtle David. So we were just, we were there all the time and I knew that music school, so I, I think I wanted just more of a challenge. And I certainly got it. You certainly got it. When I went down the street to LSU. What do you mean, more of a challenge? Well, um, I mean, as far as the music school was concerned, there was more there, more practice rooms, uh, more band equipment, um, more technology. I mean, just everything that was more of at LSU than was at Southern. I didn't know those professors, of course, but um, I, so I just wanted, that's what kind of challenge. I just wanted more of a challenge. So that was part of the challenge. Yeah. Just going to Southern. That was part of the challenge. The other part of the challenge that I didn't really think about a whole lot 
was going into a predominantly white situation where I just left a predominantly black situation. You didn't think about it? I mean, you know, it was there, but, you know, I didn't really, um, I, I, you know, it, it wasn't a barrier. I just decided to go for it. And that's what I did. And uh, it was rough. I'm not going to say it. it was not an easy. I mean, you're talking about the chilly climate. It wasn't chilly. It was cold. At all, all the time. Just about. During the middle, during the middle of the August heat, it was cold. Yes, it was. <laughs> but, you know, you, you go through situations like that and you have things and, you know, we discuss it amongst ourselves, you know, other, other, other students of color that were at LSU. We lived on, I lived on campus for all four years and when I was, um, you know, working on my bachelor's degree. And there were incidents. And we talked about them, you know, with each other, but, and maybe, maybe with our parents, but I even stopped talking about them to my parents because they were thinking about taking me out. And, you know. Isn't this like what, for example? Well, things like, um, you know, you walk into class and, you know, there's a lot of students on the sidewalk and somebody just knock you off the sidewalk. <laughs> you know, and, just, and you don't know who it is because, it's, you know, it's a group of people walking, you going through, even in the hallways. I remember in Allen Hall. You know, the, the, the halls would be full when you're changing classes and people would just hit you or just do something and keep on walking. I mean, I had people that I was spat on. Um, that's the same as spit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, most, most people listen to my show, they are, they're not familiar with that term. Okay, cool. Well, yeah, so that happened. And I remember one day I was shot with a pistol, water pistol. Uh, as I was walking along Highland Road uh, on the sidewalk, I never forget, I was almost in front of the law school. And uh, they just drove by in the car and shot me with water. Drove down, turned around, came back, did it again. So, you know, you, you go through things like that. And, you know, it's, they're small incidents to some people, but they tend to mount up after a while. Now, the folks at Southern say, well, you should have known that when you went there. You should have gave this up. <laughs> yeah, so I know. Why put yourself in that kind of predicament? Yeah. Well, you know, I saw some of my classmates in high school actually go to some of the uh, predominantly white high schools. Some came back because of the situation. And some stayed, but um, several of them came back to the lab school. And they did it in high school. So I figured, well, you know, I'm in college now. You know, I have to kind of make it on my own, figure it out, and go for it. And also, you joined the LSU drill team, what kind of team? <laughs> yes, um, I had uh, been very active at, at the lab school and, and the different extracurricular activities. You know, I was in the choir, you know, this, I was a thespian in the drama society and, you know, the various organizations. So when I went to LSU, I didn't want to just go to class. I wanted to be involved in some type of extracurricular, you know, activity in an organization. So three, three of us decided we weren't going alone. We had two of our buddies, you know, so it was three of us decided that we were you going remember to... That, you remember the two buddies? Yes. Um, Loretta Verdue and Rose Rocher. Rose Rocher. And we were... From Port Allen? From Port Allen. All right. Yes. And uh, Rose, uh, um, Loretta Verdue was a, a classmate of mine at the lab school. And then we met Rose when we got to, to LSU. And we were all in the same dormitory in the freshman dorm. And so we, all, we were all very active, you know. And so we said, we're going to figure out something for us to do this outside of our classroom. I have no idea how we came up with the co-ed affiliate Persian rifles. 
What they call it again? Co-ed affiliate Persian rifles. <laughs> we were the affiliate to the guys. We actually had real rifles. Then they did, you know, fancy drill with rifles. Mm -hmm. Where there was a girl team that did fancy drill too with play rifles. <laughs> but we had to dress out at all the home games and, you know, dress in our blue and white. Cause, you know, she was military school. And so we, you know, learned all the aspects of being in the military. Had to dress out for every game. And um, we decided, and that's what we did. <laughs> Don't ask me why the Coed Affiliate Persian Rock. None of us can figure out figure it out today. And how long did y'all do that? For two, three years? We did it. We did it for a year going into the second year, but uh, Rose and Loretta left and went to Southern. Why did they leave the Well, yeah, because of the environment. Of the, yeah, because of the environment. You What's know, it, it was discriminatory. And uh, they, it was a hostile environment back then. Yeah, it was. In some of the classrooms, you know, we felt good in our dorms and we could, you know, kind of lean on each other, but we all had dis different disciplines. So we were all in classes by ourselves. And, you know, some of the teachers were not fair. You know, different things happened. You know, like some of the things I just, you know, uh, shared with you. And they were happening with us as we were, you know, by ourselves, not, not usually in a group. When you're by yourself, somebody could do something and just keep on going, and you don't know who it is, so you don't even know who to report. You know. Well, also when uh, when you were with the Persian Rifle, uh, the Persian Rifle, yeah, co-ed affiliate Persian Rifles. <laughs> when y'all tra y'all traveled? Yes, we traveled. I remember once we went to Alabama. You know, going with the guys, they did comp competitive drill. And we just, you know, did our little fancy drill. We weren't really not in com competition with any of the other uh, girl drill teams. But we would go with the guys and, uh, you know, we'd do our little drill. And I remember this, this, this one time we were going to, through Alabama, and they would stop. We were in a, the university station wagons, and they would stop. Oh, so everybody rode in station wagons back then, no buses. We had, no buses. Yeah, we, we, rode, we rode in the station wagons. I think they had the guys in the vans, but we rode in the station wagons, the girl team. So they were uh, stopping at different points, at different restaurants. And they said, oh, we're going in to see how the menu is. And so we kind of looked at each other, see how the menu is. You know, maybe all of us should go and look at the menu. So after the third time, we figured out that they were stopping to see if they would serve blacks in the restaurants, and particularly blacks with whites in the restaurant together. So that's, that was like the green book in another way. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, that's, so, uh, I remember that. You, but you, you still pressed through. You kept on. Yeah, we did. Stayed in a little while longer, but when when Loretta, when uh, Loretta and Rose left, I left too. I just didn't go back. <laughs> but, but they, they left. The, they left and went to Southern University. But you didn't leave to go to Southern. No, I, I stayed. You stayed and, and persevered. Persevered. <laughs> yeah. And you ended up graduating. Yeah. From from LSU. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what happened after graduation? Well, I had a, a bachelor's in. Uh, uh, musical performance, a vocal performance. And I decided to stay for the masters only because of Dr. Corbelita Astrochilio. And she was my applied vocal music teacher. And she, you know, she was a minority too. She was from the Philippines. She used to push me. She was my driving force. She was my mentor. 
in the music school. And she pushed me hard and, you know, she would, she would, she would force me to, um, to, to, to audition for different things. And most of the time I wouldn't get them, but you know, sometimes <laughs> I did. When I got to the master's level, I did get a couple of perform you know, solo performances and some of the things, but, um, she was the one that pushed me and pushed me. And she would even talk to my parents. You know, she would call my parents. She says, she said, no, don't, don't, don't encourage her to leave. <laughs> we want to hear, you know, she, she kept me there. And it was only because of her that I stayed for so my master's degree. Rose Roger and the other young lady, they, Loretta Virgin. They, they was gone. They was, oh yeah. They were long gone. They, they left, went to Southern, did quite well at Southern University. Mm-hmm. Now, I remember Rose was a dancing dog at Southern. Mm-hmm. That opportunity would have never happened at LSU. Not at that particular time. You're a chartered member of the sorority. Which one is that? Oh, yeah. Um, I'm a charter member of Delta Sigma Theta at LSU. We were the first uh, black sorority on the campus. What year was that? We chartered it in 1972, Iota Theta. How many charter members did y'all have then? We had nine. You had to have nine to charter. Do you remember all, all nine? And don't ask me all the names. I should, but we had nine charter members. Had nine charter members. Y'all, yeah. y'all, y'all started this. Who? Uh, it's Iota Theta chapter, Delta Sigma Theta Incorporated, and it was the two alumni chapters that chartered the chapter at LSU. So you have the Baton Rouge Deltas and the Baton Rouge Sigmas chartered the chapter at LSU. Okay. And uh, you also are a member of the Lynx? Yes, Lynx Incorporated. Now, who, now who are the Lynx? Well, the Lynx is another organization, service organization of uh, women of African descent. And we have about 16,000 members. It's an international organization because there are chapters in Jamaica, uh, Liberia, and London. So it's an international organization, too. And would you uh, work directly with these? Yeah, we have a chapter. We have two chapters here. Uh, my chapter is the Baton Rouge chapter, and uh, just Baton Rouge chapter of the Lynx Incorporated, and then we have the La Capitale chapter of the Lynx Incorporated. La Capitale. The La Capitale <laughs> chapter, yeah. Okay. They're the youngest chapter. We're the oldest. Oh, yeah, okay, good. Yeah, mm-hmm. and we have... Uh, yeah, so, yeah. Mm-hmm. There's about 16,000 women. And, and you're part of the Rotary Club, so you do a little bit of everything. Yeah, I'm a Rotarian. <laughs> you, you, are you the president of the Rotary no, Club? No, no, I'm secretary of the uh, uh, the Capital City Rotary Club. Okay, you got your hand in everything. Uh, well, you know, I always wanted to do service to my community. And I figured the best way to do it is to be long to the organizations. You can get more, it's more impactful if you do it that way. You know, and so I, I knew about the Deltas in high school. I was a Del Sprite. And um, I would go on the campus again, Southern University campus, and these are the sororities and fraternities I would see. And I had Deltas that I knew personally, so, of course, they would always talk to me about the Delta. But I, when I went to LSU, I, we didn't have any. So what you do? If you don't have it, you try to start it, right? So a group of us got together. And we decided that we wanted to be Deltas. And so we started talking to the uh, alumni chapters and to see what to do. In, in 1972, y'all made it. In 1972, we chartered our Theta chapter. But you ended up graduating from LSU. What was your next uh, adventure? Well, I, uh, 
I, you know, I did the masters there too in vocal performance and vocal pedagogy. Oh, you did the masters right behind the. Yeah. At LSU. Yes, I just because I just stayed on because I, you know, I had that professor that was pushing me, <laughs> Dr. Corbelita Astrakivio. <laughs> she was still there, and uh, she uh, encouraged me to stay on for the master's degree, and, and you know, continue to work with her in vocal performance. So she was in your corner. She was in my corner. So you end up getting a getting a bachelor and master's back to back at LSU. Yes. Mm-hmm. That was a major accomplishment, particularly at that time. Mm-hmm. You hang in there that long. Mm-hmm. I was hanging in there. Well, you know, it, I, I think along with her, which was she's a very, you know, just an extraordinary woman. But it was my my family too. My parents. They were. I, I used to call them my bookends. You know, <laughs> they were because you know they supported me. They really supported me in everything. With all our performances, whether I had a solo part or not, they were there. You know, they were there because my my uh, dad, uh, you know, my mother, you know, my mother has three degrees from Southern. And my my dad was a laborer at Exxon and was at Esso Standard Oil when he started. And of course, now it's Exxon Standard Oil Company. And he was a laborer. He only made it to the 10th grade in high school. And he... um, You know, at Chaneville High School in Zachary. Chaneville, okay. But he he was so determined to get his high school diploma that even after working at the plant, he went to night school so he would finish um, his, you know, so he would get his high school diploma. He went to night school. I remember that. Uh, And uh, and he always told me, he said, baby, he said, you go go as far as you can go, and Dad is going to help you. He said, I want you to go much further than I did, and so... That's what he did. And your dad was also a mason. Yes, he was in the Masonic order. Yeah, so, well, several. Uh, he was in the Shriner. He was in the Consistory. He was a 33rd degree mason. 33rd degree. Yeah, very important in our family. Masons and Eastern Stars. <laughs> <laughs> in your family, but you definitely you didn't follow in those. No, I, I was in the youth fraternity, but I didn't go any further than that. I mean, it was just... You know, I was, I had to go to everything <laughs> with everything that your children could go to. I was there. <laughs> so now, now you, you end up after your master's degree, what was your, how did you get your, end up getting your doctorate at? Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana. Okay. How did you end up in Bloomington? Well, um, Dr. Raph Appleman, who was over the vocal music research department at Bloomington came to LSU to do a, a sort of like a, artist and resident for a little for a little while at, at LSU. And so he did a workshop and he wanted to use Dr. Astrakilio's students. And so he wanted to use me for one of his demonstrators. And so after he used me for a demonstrator, he said, when you finish here, you need to come to Indiana. Well, I'm thinking, Indiana? What? <laughs> I'll go to Indiana. <laughs> you know? And of course, Dr. Espiculio, um encouraged me to go to. She said, you continue in voice, that's the best place you can go to. And it really was. Indiana has a school. The music school consisted of about 3,000 students in the music school alone. That's a college all by itself. Really? All by itself. You know, some HBCUs don't have 3,000 students in it. 
but uh, it was a it was a it was a great experience. It's one of the best music schools in the country. You know, when a lot of the the uh, performers at the Met finish, they go to Indiana to teach, and after they retire from the stage, they go to Indiana University to teach. I was really honored, you know, for him to to uh, invite me. To the, I, and I didn't want another. I didn't want a PhD. I didn't want another degree. I just wanted to go for further study. But you didn't want a PhD? No, I, I wasn't looking to get another degree in music. Another PhD at all. I just wanted to sing. <laughs> you was a singer. I was a singer. Oh, okay, then. I was a performer. So I went to um, work with him. And uh, yeah, you know, he was, a, I mean, an excellent vocal pedagogy. And, you know, in vocal pedagogy and vocal music. And uh, he was still singing in opera himself. And, and Dr. Dr. Appleman was probably in his 70s at that time, but he performed until he was way in his 80s. So what what are, what are some, you know, what was the exciting part about going to Bloomington, Indiana? What did you like, like about the university? What, what was some exciting Well, it, it, you know, when I was thinking about going, because they had invited me, but, you know, I was thinking about it. And so, of course, I looked it up to see what else they had to offer. I go there and, you know, I take a few classes, apply vocal music and, you know, just whatever else I wanted to take, you know, checked out to see what else do they have. And I saw, oh, they have a black music center. <laughs> a black music center? They had a black, in Indiana? Uh, had a black music research center. And um, so that definitely piqued my interest because at LSU, I didn't do hardly any black music. I, I asked my professor if I could do something on my recitals. You know, I had a bachelor's recital and I had a master's recital. So, I, you know, you maybe do a spiritual or two. But I really started looking at black composers and I wanted to perform some of their works. So I thought, wow, Black Music Center, that really intrigued me. So I started checking into that and to see whatever, what else they offered you know, as far as black music was concerned. Well, so not only that, but they had a black studies program and they had an African studies program, the Black Music Center, then a black art institute. All of this was at Indiana University. In, in the 70s? Yeah. You know, well, late 70s, early 80s. LSU just got. <laughs> yeah, in 94. We have a, um, you know, we got the black. Um, but the actual department. Project. They, yeah. just, they just got that last year, LSU. Department, yes. We had a program. We had a uh, program. But Indiana had a department? They had a full department of African-American studies. They had a full department of African studies, an African-American Arts Institute, and a black culture center. All of that was in Indiana when I got there. And that was late 70s. And it was in full, full bloom. Full bloom. Yeah, I was like seven heaven. <laughs> what, what, I didn't know how to act. <laughs> well, I mean, oh, you was you was you was very excited. Oh yes, I mean, because of seeing people like you, that's made it more exciting. Oh, just because you can learn more about Both. your culture. I had never had a black professor, never, in 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 the in a university system. So I had a couple of black professors. You know, most of them were black. As a matter of fact, when I, because I did a, I did a, well, later on when I decided to go for a PhD, I did the African American Studies minor. And uh, I did, you know, instructional systems technology, and then I did an African minor. I didn't actually officially do that. I did the coursework, but I didn't officially apply for the African Studies minor. But I was, it was just so all, I mean, I had three minors when I left. Would you want to get everything they had to offer over there? 
<laughs> you got that excited? Yes. You, I guess you felt deprived at LSU. I, I felt deprived because I, I didn't have anything, um, you know, anything along, you know, in, the, in terms of black studies at LSU when I was there. So no you, black studies, no black professors, none of that. Well, with your department, the geography and anthropology yeah. department. There's still how many of y'all? How many of you? Well, I'm the only one. I'm the only black professor. How many of of us even entertain getting going into into that anthropology? Well, that um, that's another situation because um, a lot of students. You certainly don't hear about this in high school. Now, I have uh, just taken on my own to go into some of the schools that have predominantly black students uh, to introduce them to anthropology, folklore, ethnomusicology fields where we can study ourselves. And, you know, because at one time, even these fields, you didn't study yourself, you studied the other. Comparative studies, you compared, basically compared it with European culture instead, and, or whatever. You don't, you don't do your own. You don't study your own self. They figure that you can't be objective enough. So you have to study the other. And that's the way anthropology was for a long time. We were just, you know, um, folklore too, you know, all these disciplines. They were comparative. We had comparative musicology. You compare, again, European music with indigenous music or whatever else the, you know, the folk music is of that country. Uh, now you can study European music in ethnomusicology. Now you can study any music of the world that you want to study in, in the field of ethnomusicology. But you couldn't do that 60, 70 years ago. So they just kept a tight, tight hand on what, they, yeah. what you can do and how you can do. Yeah. So they were. And so here I am at Indiana University. You mean I can study my own music? Your own culture. <laughs> my own culture. I was elated. <laughs> and I know you can do that, but here's a, I'm at this place now that I can actually do this. So it, it allowed you to really thrive. Yes. In your, in your own right. In, in my own, in working with my own culture, music, folklore. Oh, and I, you know, things that come up in the folklore class. I say, oh, my uncle used to do that. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so not like playing the dozens. Oh, okay. You are speaking the dueling, verbal dueling on the streets and toasting, the toast tradition. My yeah, yeah, uncle yeah, and family that, used that, to that's do that. That's part of your culture. It's yes. no big deal. But they're just like learning something new. Uh, I say, oh, I grew up well, with this. Okay, now you had that wonderful, awesome experience at the University of Indiana. Mm-hmm. Indiana University. In, in, in Indiana University in Bloomington. Bloomington, Indiana. So how you end up back south at LSU? <laughs> so you had that great of a time. What brought you back here? Well, after a while, I, you know, my professors... The, the, the excitement left? <laughs> no, no, after, no, after a while, my professors finally, you know, was telling me, why don't you just go on and apply for the degree? Because I was just taking courses. So I went on and applied for the PhD, and, uh, and I decided to go the folklore and ethnomusicology route instead of, you know, like anthropology or music. I didn't want another degree in music. And uh, I felt more at home in folklore and ethnomusicology. And it's a joint degree, again, you know, in folklore and ethnomusicology. And um, so I finished the PhD there. Um, but before I finished, I was working on my dissertation and trying to work, finish up a dissertation, 
working two or three little jobs, you know. Two or three little jobs. <laughs> well, I, I came back home to New Orleans to work, do my field work for the dissertation, which is a major thing we have to do is the field work. And I, was, I decided to do mine in gospel music. Well, initially I wanted to go to Africa and study the Sunjata epic in Mali. So I took two years of Bambara preparing to go to Mali, but I never did get the money. I never did get the fellowship to go. So I said, oh, uh, what else can I do that really interests me? And the study of gospel music. Uh, my parents, my father had a, a, a singing group in his family, the Jacksons, and they, you know, performed gospel music. And then I used to hear quartets and all of that. And I said, well, I think I'll do something where we have a void. And there was a void in quartets, you know, in the study of quartets. So that's what I chose to do. So I moved back to New Orleans to do the field work for my dissertation. And after I did a lot of the field work there, I stayed there for a year. It's kind of like a little groupie. I followed quartets around, gospel quartets, and, and interviewed them, you know, and observed them in the context of, um, you know, in the contextual setting of the churches, of whatever community centers they were singing in. So I studied that for a year, just going around New Orleans and, and doing that. I did one group in Baton Rouge that I grew up hearing, and so I included them. Um, you know, talked to who, some who, of my... Who, you know who, who it was in Baton Rouge? Zion Travelers. Oh. Zion Travelers Spiritual Singers. Uh, I worked with them in Baton Rouge. Zion Harmonizers in New Orleans. Now you told me that when you attended LSU, they told you to not to not to sing. Okay. Yeah, uh, not to sing gospel music. They thought that gospel music would destroy my voice. <laughs> but that's where your voice come from. Yeah. But they, they they literally told you not to sing. Oh yeah, yeah. So you couldn't sing gospel music while you was at, attending LSU. No, I I was in my church choir. I got out of the choir. I got out of my church choir. I did. Because yeah. you, you thought your, your professors knew better, right? Yes, I and, did. And we know gospel music moves the whole world. It does. <laughs> you know, even Governor Edwards, a couple of weeks ago, had a gospel, uh, mosaic gospel choir at his, at his going out, going, going away, going home thing. Yeah, so gospel is a big thing in our community. But they told you not that you could not sing it or not to stay. Yeah, she encouraged me to get out of my church choir and stop singing gospel music. Because at the time, they thought gospel music would destroy the vocal cords. Not destroy it, but, you know, give you bad, um, you know, bad technique. Because you had a certain technique that you used when you were singing classical music. So you tell me you lost your soul over the whole attended LSU? <laughs> well, you know, I must say it wasn't just LSU. It was at some of the um, HBCUs, too. If you're in the music school at Southern University, because I know I used to go up there all the time, and down, you know, in the hallways of Southern University, they did not want you to play or sing gospel music or blues and rhythm and blues. Jazz was fine and classical music. But they would, you know, take you out of the class, put you out of the practice room if you practice gospel music or blues. That was at Southern. Um, so they, they <laughs> yeah. kept you with your own culture. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you're studying classical music, that's basically all they wanted you to study. Um, now, you let's fast forward. So how, how did you end up back at LSU? Okay, well, you know, after I did my field work in New Orleans, uh, I had another year I needed to write then, you know, got all these interviews, all these observations, videotapes, you know, I had been collecting this all, all year and um, I had to write it up now. 
So I went home to stay with my parents. That's the only place I could stay for free, you know, and just write. Because <laughs> everywhere else I had to keep a job. In New Orleans, I had three jobs <laughs> as I was doing my field work. I was subbing at the schools. I, uh, I, I uh, obtained my real estate license. So I was working in real estate and working at Tulane University's Jazz Archives. So I was doing all yeah. of that to pay my bills. <laughs> yeah, that seems a lot about you. <laughs> you had to make it work. So you, you came back home. So I came back to my parents' house to write. Perfectly fine with them. They wanted me to finish too, you know. Uh, so I, I just, and while I was writing, I started applying for jobs. I applied to different universities. And I even applied to Southern University, but they didn't need or want an ethnomusicologist at the time. So I applied to LSU. They had an opening in the geography and anthropology department. They were looking for a folklorist because they only had one person teaching the folklore classes. And, um, you know, he's a folk, sort of like a folklorist anthropologist. You know, he wanted to teach some more. He was in vernacular architecture was his specialization. So he wanted to, you know, do that more. And they wanted to hire folklorists to take on the folklore courses. Well, I applied for the job, did the uh, uh, interviewing, and you always have to do a public presentation. I got the job. You remember what year that was? 86. No, 87. It was in the uh, spring of 87. Oh, so you've been at LSU for 30? 34 years. 34 years. 34 years. So you, you went there, two, you got two degrees from there, left there, we got a PhD at Indiana, then came back and been working at LSU. Yeah, when I got the job. Like, yeah. So you I mean, I had a time, I, in, in that period of time, I went to Washington, D.C., um, I received a fellowship at the National Endowment for the Arts. So I worked there for about six months. It was an internship sort of fellowship to learn um, cultural development management. And so I was there. And then actually I was still writing on my dissertation. It was stolen. Everything was stolen when I drove in from, from to, in, to uh, Washington, D.C. It was stolen. So that, that delayed that degree another year. It was stolen. Stolen out of my car. I mean, the hard copy, the disc, at that time we had the floppy disc. <laughs> so the floppy disc, all the hard copies was stolen. Well, that, that must have caused a, a dramatic experience. It was traumatic. <laughs> to say all that work, you know, you know, I had to sort of recreate a lot of that. So, you, so all that was just gone. It was you gone. Get, there was no other copy nowhere. Yeah, because I had, you know, at that time, you know, you're just not thinking I had my copies. With, with you, with had everything with you, yeah. Yeah, I, my, my professor, my main uh, committee chair at Indiana had a, a, a few of the um, chapters, but some that, you know, that I had, you know, really revised, but he sent me what he had, and I had to work from that. It took another year. Yeah, because I was supposed to graduate that May, you know, finish writing, because I had, you know, did a lot of work at home and I was going to finish writing and graduate in May. Well, that prolonged it for another year. But now, did you ever think to be the chair of the Department of Anthropology at LSU? Oh, no. That was nowhere on my screen. <laughs> so, <laughs> nowhere. So you, you never even, okay, you, you've been working there for 34 years. Yes. And you, in the, out of 34 years, you said, well, I'm going to be the chair one day. Well, why, why, no. did, why it never crossed your mind? Well, 
it just just never crossed my mind. Um, you look at the culture of the department. Uh, you look at how it's been status quo. And it was just moving. And basically, I was just into my research and, and my classes and my students and doing my research. I hadn't even thought about being chair. <laughs> I mean, they hadn't even had a woman chair all those years. You know, so I hadn't even thought about being chair. Working with my, my, my students and but you didn't my say, you classes. But you didn't say to yourself one day, well, I'm, I'm going to change this. They need to do something about this. Did that never cross? But not until much, much later. I know I didn't. So when you became chair this year, how did, how did that come about? Can you share how you know? Well, I was getting a little frustrated and disgusted about some of the things that were going on in the department when we were trying to make diversity hires. You know, I just made some statements in the faculty meeting and I, you know, I said, you know, this just has to change. You know, we got to do better than this. And I said, um, we have an opportunity to have this diversity hire. We had four candidates in, two of them were black, a male and a female that were black and two white uh, females. You know, we were going back and forth, having deliberations about who to vote for and what they would bring to the department and you know, what this looks like and what they would do for the students and all of this. And, you know, they were going back and forth. And I thought some of the, some people were just being a little bit nitpicky. So I just made a statement in faculty meeting. I had, this is this really needs to stop. Um, we need to move forward and do this diversity hire. And I just sort of gave a brief history of me being there for 34 years. And there are some there that have been there longer than I have been. Um, but I just reminded some of them about what had gone on in that department for the last 34 years. We had had two other black professors. One passed. He died a few years after he was uh, hired. And then another one only stayed. It was another male. He only stayed uh, a few years, and he got a better offer, another uh, university, and he left. So I just basically talked about how I was treated when I first came in, how some people just didn't even know how to talk to me. I was a black woman, uh, born and raised in the South, grew up during the Civil Rights era. And uh, the other guy that left actually was uh, from Belgium, and his uh, father was Belgium. His mother was from Sierra Leone, West Africa. And I even told him that they looked at him as the exotic other. They embraced him much more than they embraced me as a black woman from the South. And um, but, but he was, you know, he, he spoke four or five different languages. He had a very strong French accent. He was definitely, you know, black. You could see he was, you know, of color. But they was comfortable. But uh, they were more comfortable with him than they were with me. Probably because you knew more about the history, too. I knew about the history. I knew, yeah. And I could really talk about the life I've had at LSU since a student. You know, I, you know, I don't need anybody to tell me. I have experiential and historical knowledge. I know how it was in, at LSU in 1968. And I had to talk to, and his name was Jean Ray. I had to talk to him about it because he, you know, he hadn't experienced it. You had to bring him up to speed. Yeah, yeah. He, he, you know, we talked, we had conversation. He, he really <laughs> looked at me as kind of like his mentor because he was learning a lot about U.S., you know, history, the Southern history, you know. And, um, you know, discrimination and stuff. When he was discriminated on or when he was targeted at LSU, you know, he was so appalled he didn't know how to act. And so I had to explain to him, I said, this is what's happening. You are black. You know, you're looked on as black by some other people outside of this department. 
you know, we were doing this uh, African studies, you know, this, uh, the African Film Festival, festival. we were doing it together. We'd written the grant and gotten the funding to bring in the films and then have panel discussions after the films. And uh, he was uh, so struck when somebody wrote across the, the uh, we have this big poster, and he had a poster on his, the door of his, his uh, office, and it said, go back to Africa, nigger across the poster. And he was just upset. He took it to the chair. He took it to the dean. He took it. <laughs> and it, you know, I, I, wa I wasn't surprised. But, so I had to talk to him. And, and we had good conversations about that and, and why that happened to him. That was his awakening. That was an awakening for him. It really was. Because he had, he had been in the U.S., but he had, uh, was in San Francisco for a while, I think he was a postdoc. He was in San Francisco for something for about a year or so before he uh, got the job at LSU. And uh, but he had really hadn't you know hadn't experienced a lot of discrimination, so or, or you know he targeted like that. And he really he he was truly upset. So then he he really wanted to. So he talked a lot about it. You know? and, so, uh, so an opportunity came. He got out. Yeah, he sure did. Okay. <laughs> but uh, but also, I, you know, being at LSU afforded you opportunities to do a lot of traveling. And I know you do a lot of research and study abroad in some of your favorite places or where. Yeah, I, I've been drawn to the Afro-based um, French, Afro-French countries like Senegal and Haiti. And I, I guess because... Um, well, I, I knew I first went to Senegal, became interested in Senegal after reading Gwendolyn Middle Hall's book on Africanisms in colonial Louisiana. And she talked about the fact that the Senegalese were one of the first ethnic groups to come in to New Orleans or to Louisiana, period. As enslaved people. Enslaved people, yes. In this, you know, early 1700s. And she talked about the fact that about 12 or 13 ships came in and 11 of them came directly from Senegal. So that really intrigued me because I, I, I always thought my grandmother looked like a tall Senegalese woman. <laughs> and I, I don't know. I don't know, you know, where my ancestors, what, what ethnic group uh, we came from, but I like to, you know, claim Senegal. <laughs> you visit there quite a few times. Oh, yeah. I've, I've uh, been there a number of times. Um, First, actually, going with my husband, he was uh, friends with some of them, the Senegalese ambassadors that came into D.C., and he used to shoot, you know, do photography for them. So first I went with him, and then next um, I wanted to go back and, and do some studying there. I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. I just knew I wanted to be in the Senegambia area because they were the groups that first came here from, 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 from uh, West Africa. So I had uh, one of the doctors at um, Morehouse ask me if I would interview one of the healers, that they were bringing the healer to the Morehouse Medical School because they, they had a, 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 an institute on traditional healing practices. And so they were bringing this healer from Senegal. So he asked me, he gave me the interview. She didn't give introduction. She didn't give interviews anymore. So he gave me a letter to give her as an introductory letter. So from him, it's Dr. Dr. Fitch in Moorhead, Morehouse College. And so he wanted Nash to take the pictures and uh, he wanted me to interview her. That's how it started. I interviewed this. She was 106 years old 
when we got there. And, um, you know, I had to get special permission to. She's a legend. She's very important in the, in the country. And so I had the permission and introduction to her to go in and interview her. Now you said a healer. Explain what we're with. Uh, a traditional healer. Um, and and the, that really moved me into studying rituals. I already sort of looked at rituals, but looking at rituals in Africa and the diaspora, and this was one of the ones that I looked at, but traditional healing practices. I had an uncle that asked me, well, what, what do you do? You know, when you go to Africa, what do you work with? I said, well, I work with these traditional healers. So I had to explain to him how his, his mother and my grandmother used to, you know, some of the things that she used to do for traditional healing practices. She knew some herbs and things you can, you know, put on a sore to help it heal or something that you take internally, you know, for a bad stomach ache or something you do for a cold. And she, she used herbs and things that she'd have in the garden or some tree she would get it off of in the, in the yard. And so a lot of things she did, we didn't know what tree or what you know, plant she was getting it from, but you know, they, in a lot of our elders, especially in the South, worked with these traditional healing practices because they didn't have the money to go to physicians. And um, so they learned a lot of these and it was passed down through the, you know, generations. And so, in fact, when I was a boy, my grandparents, particularly my, on my dad's side, my grandmother, if somebody had any kind of ill, but she just said, go to the yard and pull this plant or flower. Uh, you know, because back then nobody cut grass like they do now, so right. there was no way of manicured yeah. yard. Whatever grew, they let it. They would let it grow natural. Mm-hmm. And but she would tell us to go pick up, pick certain certain type of tea leaves, you know, for certain purposes and whatever ailment you had. That's just going to the doctor. That wasn't even a thought. Exactly. Because like you said, you call them healers. Doctors call a practicing physician. They still practicing. Right. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> these, people, these people actually was healing people. <laughs> they were healing. Uh, and so that's what I was looking at. This was one of the healers in Senegal that was highly respected. I mean, people came in from Europe so that she could work with them. And, of course, the Senegalese highly respected her. Now, you have to realize this is a 90% Muslim country. At some point in time, you know, women were not as respected or as, you know, they. but now in contemporary times, you know, you have women that are business, business women and in, in, uh, in, in politics and all of this. Well, a healer, you know, they, they don't look at ritual as such. And, and this traditional healing, this practice was passed down through generations by women in the Lebu ethnic group in Senegal. They're around fishing villages, Rufis, Yoff. Tubabjalo, those villages, and they're, they're around the edges, you know, of the ocean, fishing villages. And these women are very powerful healers. In that particular country, in, in that Muslim country, you know, you, in the early age, you know, we way back, you know, when this particular healer here, she's Mum Fatustek was her name, she's 106 years old, well, she learned it from her mother. And now she's passing it down to her daughter. You know, so it comes through the women, the lineage. You know, it's, it, I saw myself how powerful she was when, you know, some of the politicians would come and ask them if they would come to their, you know, like a political rally. Because if a healer showed up, depending on which one it was, that means that person is highly respected. And I mean, that political person, if, if this healer shows up to your rally, that means you're okay. You know, you you sanctioned by the healer. So that's how powerful she was. I went to one interview 
and they were getting ready. And so, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm curious and so what, what, what's going on? So her, she has an entourage and her entourage had on their regalia, all this serious, colorful regalia. So you got about 10, 12 women all dressed in these beautiful colors, the same dressing. And then you got the healer there and they had to carry her because she, you know, she didn't walk very well anymore. It's just a magnificent view to see that, you know, these powerful women coming through. This is a Muslim country, you know, <laughs> they respected her. And most healers are respected. Even the athletes respect them. But I noticed that I went to some wrestling matches while I was there, simply because it was a connection with the healer. In Tulajalo, the small village, I was able to go to the wrestling match. Then I was able to interview the, the, the wrestler um, before and after. And he had his own healer there with him. He, she would, you know, put some portions in, in his belt or either he'd wear it around his neck. And um, then he had this um, this liquid that he would pour over him, and that's that's to help him with his power. And he, they wouldn't do anything without their healer being there. Sounds like in the movie The Black Panther. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> or they could fight. They had to go through these rituals. That, and that's basically the, the what black, they were doing. The Black doing. Panther was nothing without without the power, uh, going through the ritual, giving them the power. That's right. Well, that comes from African tradition. Yeah. yeah. And the, the, so I was in. The, and then I went to the national stadium where the the big wrestlers wrestle. It's a whole performance. You know, you have the healer there, and they her her entourage, and they do their dancing and stuff. And then you got the drummers over here, and that, it was like. This is a performance, you know, and the rest of they might. <laughs> <laughs> but that's no different than going to some university game. Hey, waiting on halftime. <laughs> I do anyway. I mean, because I mean, that's... I want to see the great performance, so that's everywhere. Yeah, and, you know, even with the, the basketball games, you know, sometimes they have part part of the band there, and then the cheerleaders and all that. So. Want, want to get some... some business but in Senegal, I was the healers. And their entourage, and you know, their drummers, they got their master drummers with them. So you got all this going on in a wrestling match. <laughs> it was just wonderful. And, and, and everybody waiting patiently. Waiting patiently, that's right. And then you, you know, and you see them, the, the wrestlers go over, they work their healers, they do their thing. This, this is a whole ritual. And it, it's amazing to see so these powerful women. And wrestling is a big thing in, in African countries. Oh, yeah. Of course, you know, soccer, but wrestling. Yes is the other thing that's really, you know, their football is soccer, but wrestling is the other thing. It's serious. It's that serious. It's very serious. To have your own healer, she got to be, she, you got to have your healer there. You know? And is it a, in a big stadium? Yes, the, the national stadium. I went to wrestling matches there, in, in the one in a small village. And then I had to, you know, I was following the wrestlers there because I wanted to see what the healers was happening, that interaction between the wrestler and the healer, that dialogue that they were having between them was this powerful. You know? And I don't know what all is in the little things that they wear and the, and the liquid that they, they pour over them. So, yeah. so they, they didn't just do like we do, say, we're going to pray. Whoever got the best relationship with Jesus is going to win. Huh? <laughs> so they, they don't work quite that way there. Uh, no, 
know. It, yeah, you got somebody has to lose, but you know, it depends on who has the most powerful healer. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> now, how'd you end up in Haiti? Oh, well, Haiti was another uh, country that I had an interest in for a long time, again, because of the, the, um, the influence of Haitian culture on Louisiana culture. And I've always wanted to go to Haiti. Well, I, I did a project with the Meadows Museum in North Louisiana um, with Dr. Briere, who was a Haitian a collector. He was a physician, but he was a collector of Haitian art. And um, when they asked me to work with that museum and they wanted me to do a presentation on Haitian culture, I said, well, it's good to do a historical presentation, but we need to know what Haitians are doing that are in Louisiana today because they, they doubled the population of Louisiana after the Haitian Revolution. So I said, so we still have so much Haitian influence here in the culture, in the language, in the food, and religion. So let's find out what's going on today. And so I, you know, so they did that. They, they gave me money in, in, to go out and interview the Haitians that were in New Orleans and in Shreveport because the exhibit was in Shreveport. So that's how I started getting into the Haitian community by going into... Um, into New Orleans and doing interviews there, and I interviewed all the Haitians that went Shreveport at the time, which was 12. <laughs> Dr. Briere was one, and he took me around to all these Haitians <laughs> to their homes so I could interview them, because I was looking really at what were the things that they had maintained of their culture after coming to Louisiana. I mean, these are, you know, contemporary Haitians, so to speak, so I wanted to know what major um, things that they were still doing to maintain their Haitian culture. You know, I knew that was important to them. So, um, and so it, it was a very um, enlightening ex exercise that I did. It, you know, I learned a lot about Haitian culture through talking to the people. Are you saying that, that New Orleans doubled in population? Mm -hmm. When was this? After the Haitian Revolution. After the Toussaint Overture? Yeah, after the Haitian Revolution over in 1803, 1804. Of course, there were mass migrations before the revolution was over because the planters were leaving, going to Louisiana, Cuba, wherever else they could go. But of course, they were taking their enslaved people with them. And oh, so, okay. So they came. So the Haitian, the New Orleans population grew overnight. Yes. Because of the migration, the migration of Haitians. Mm -hmm. Coming to New Orleans in the 1800s. Yeah. But they came way, came, came by through the way of uh, the slave masters brought them. Yeah, the slave masters brought, yeah, they, they're enslaved people, but there were also free people of color that came. So it wasn't just enslaved people, but the free people of color also came. And that brought New Orleans into a three tiered society that the white, the Creoles, and the enslaved, There's the Creoles and free people of color, because all free people of color are not considered Creoles, and but so they had, but they basically had a three-tiered society. Okay, since I got an anthropologist in there, that's always been a big question about what is a Creole. Well, you know, it depends on the time of history that you're talking about. Some at one time they considered Creoles to be people of another descent that was born in Louisiana. So, like, if you're a European and your parents came to Louisiana and you were born in Louisiana, then you were Creole. And then other people say, well, you know, another definition, of course, is when you have the mixture of uh, black and French or black and indigenous people. They're considered like Creoles, too. 
a, a, you know, a black and you know, some uh, Spanish, French, whatever. And uh, Edna Jordan Smith, uh, uh, one of the renowned ge geologists around the Louisiana area, said that also Creole was a term like like you just defined, but she said for when the Africans came to this country, mm -hmm. but. When their child was born here, yes, it was considered a Creole. A Creole, yes, yeah. And that's my, that was my first time hearing that. Oh yeah, that was. So it had nothing to do with you know we grew up Creole had to do with your, the complexion of your skin. If you were light complexion, you was considered a Creole. But I knew when I grew up that wasn't true because there was people Creole that we call it's called Creole that was a different you know uh, dark to to light. Mm -hmm. but, I, but for the most part, it means like light skin. For the for, for these days and time, they, they use it more for the lighter complexion people, and for mixed because you have you know yeah, mixed, mixed blood which which are not light, some are dark, and they're still considered Creoles. So it depends on you know who you mix with. <laughs> now, what kind of work were you doing in Haiti? Well, um, I was actually I, I first started going in looking at Carnival. Because I also do carnival in New Orleans, Mardi Gras Indians. We're going to get that's your favorite subject. And, and, uh, yes. But I went there because I was always interested in um, the indigenous population and how they are represented in carnival. And there are Haitians who also honor their indigenous populations, the Arawak Indians, you know. Um, and so they dress like the Arawak Indians in, in carnival. And it's a lot of bands of Indians. So, so the, the Haitians in Haiti have a Mardi Gras there too? Yeah, what well, they call it, Carnival. Carnival. Mm -hmm. And they have two, as a matter of fact. They have one in, of course, the main, they call it the National Carnival in Port of, Port of, Port of Spain. Uh, I mean, Port-au-Prince. <laughs> Mixed with Trinidad, I do Trinidad too. But the other one is Jacmel. They have a traditional carnival in Jacmel. It happens the week before the National Carnival. So I went to the National Carnival first, and this was right after the um, earthquake. So they were moving it around. They didn't have it in Port. They, they moved it around to uh, Capetian, which is in the northern part of Haiti, because they wanted to take it to different cities so they could bring revenue to those cities. Because you know, if you have carnival, people coming from you know from all other countries, they come in to Haiti. It's like they come to Trinidad, come to New Orleans, you know, or the Caribbean folk. They come so, in so you're telling me that, because even in Brazil, mm -hmm. so Mardi Gras or Carnival is a part of the, the culture of who, what people? Well, uh, many countries have Carnival, um, yeah, Brazil, uh, Haiti, Trinidad, uh, a, a number of other countries. You know, some of the other, some of the other, they ca may call it something different, like in Jamaica, they have Jean Canoe. Okay, but I'm saying you know? that, you know, for the most part, we've been in Louisiana with European, I mean, we thought... Carnival was a European type of thing. Mm -hmm. Well, it was basically started in Europe. Yeah, oh, it was. And, mm -hmm. and when you know when we had the the diaspora began with uh, all of the uh, uh, people for, of African descent, they had carnival wherever they were. You know, so it's, it's now it's in these countries. It's a mixture of the culture of that country as well as European culture. So you have these cultures mixing up for carnival Mardi Gras. Now, in some areas like New Orleans. They have, you know, the big float parades, which is basically kind of like the European side of it. But in the black communities, they walk the streets. And so it's a different type of carnival. As a matter of fact, they didn't even call it Mardi Gras. 
they call it carnival. You know, so you have those influences from Haiti because the Haitians came into New Orleans. And so you have these mixtures. I look at, like, you take the Mardi Gras Indians, for instance, a walking uh, carnival, walking in the streets, parading through the streets, doing processions. And they're a combination of West African influence, Caribbean influence, and indigenous influence. So, and, and because it's on Mardi Gras Day, a lot of people say European influence, too, because it's during that time. But... You know, it's, so it's a combination of cultures that but, are coming but, together. And, but, Mardi, but the, the Indians just don't uh, come out on Mardi Gras Day. No. They come out, they got something called Super Sunday. Yeah, they, well, even before Super Sunday, they do St. Joseph's Day. And I can't, you know, I'm st- I still ask, why St. Joseph's Day? Well, you know, there's a lot of Catholics in um, New Orleans. Right. It was the highest Catholic population of, of blacks. So another day that they come on, they wanted, that was a traditional one, Carnival and St. Joseph's Day. It's just another day to celebrate, another day we can wear our suits. The Super Sunday started because of the protests uh, with um, Jerome Smith and Tamarine and Fan Club, you know, basically the youth of the community in Treme. And he started Super Sunday, but looking at it as a way to protest destruction of many of the black homes in the Tree May area when they brought, uh, when they destroyed Claiborne Avenue, they st- destroyed all the trees. It was kind of like a parkway. And it was, it was um, lined with oak trees and grass where the community would congregate for different things, all sorts of, you know, community activities. But when they destroyed that and pulled in the interstate, they destroyed a lot they of the ran, homes. They ran the interstate straight, straight through, as usual, straight, straight through the community. Straight through the community. Destroyed the park area and the home, many homes and black businesses. This, this was in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. Claiborne Avenue. Claiborne Avenue that goes down to. Oh, it crosses the city, really. Legion Field, yeah. That goes yeah, down. yeah. So, 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 now tell him what, what Super Sunday is. What happened on Super Sunday? Well, what happened, he was, it was a sort of a protest march. So there was marching. Pro- marching. You know, because of the urban the urban renewal, and they were destroying the community, <laughs> right? So, they, so but now it up end up being a party. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. Well, it started as a pro, and and the story that I get from several people that Tutti Chief Big Chief Tutti Montana, you know, knew Jerome, and they used to talk, and he knew that Jerome was having this protest march, you know, and to speak about what had been done to the community. And so he decided that he was going to march too. He ain't going to join them. But he joined them in his Indian suit. So, of course, when people see Big Chief Tootie out there in his Indian suit, you know. So they came out to start dancing. They, they start dancing. <laughs> they second line. And some of the more Indians went put all that in Indian suits. <laughs> ain't going to be out there, though. Big Chief Tootie out here is serious. So, <laughs> so they say, okay, we're going to join them too. And that started the first Super Sunday in the downtown area around Treme, you have Orleans Avenue, Treme, that's that, that's that area by the municipal auditorium, Congo, not far from Congo Square and all of that. That's, that's the Treme area. And that's where the first Super Sunday started. And then the uptown, the down, that was from downtown. So the uptown folks said, well, we're going to have a Super Sunday too. So then the uptown decided that they would have a Super Sunday. And then the wet, years later, the West Bank 
decided that they were going to have a Super Sunday. And so now you have three Super Sundays on three different Sundays. And every day the Indians can come back out again with their suits on. And the, the skeleton men, the baby dolls, all of this is like, you know, the black Mardi Gras, this black carnival. They, they celebrate it. They celebrate it three more days. They make them three more days. <laughs> and, and, and you, I understand you're working on a documentary about yeah, this? Yeah. Well, there have been a number of documentaries um, that have been uh, filmed on the Indians, but I just thought that I would do one really concentrating on the music because um, the music is very important to the ritual. You, so you take the music away, you don't have nothing. It's a, yeah, it's a street ritual. And it's, it's, it's very important um, with the procession, because basically they do processions on carnival. And uh, it's not a parade, it's a procession where the different groups, different Indian gangs meet each other. And it's a mock battle, they're warriors, and they have this mock battle on the street. So after, um, you know, um, the, the, the Super Sundays, it's just kind of a parade. You know, they just parade in the streets so everybody can still see their suits again, you know, and see how beautiful they are. And they know. really are beautiful. And yeah. I see we at your home today. We should be thank you for inviting us here. And you got some wonderful, beautiful pictures of some Mardi Gras Indians right behind you. Yes, so been we, working that, with them a long time. And that's what you and your husband, Nash, y'all really put, spend a lot of time mm-hmm. with the Mardi Gras Indians. Yes, and it's a complex ritual. Most people think it's just something they do on Carnival Day or Super Sunday, St. Joseph's. But many of the um, participants actually live Indian. What do you mean, live Indian? All year round, it's a life cycle, right? I mean, it's a part of their lives. Now, now the question would be, is this an Indian... Like they're part of Native Native American, or they just call themselves Indian? Well, both. Some of them actually have Native American ancestry, and um, some don't. But those that don't act like they do. (laughs) (laughs) And it's it's sacred. It's a sacred thing. Whether, you know, you really know you have some indigenous ancestry or not. It's, you you know, because they are celebrating the indigenous people. Now, when I was a little boy, and I always tell this story, because my grandmother on my dad's side, she would always say that, you know, we, she was Native American, and she would, she would always, she would never give us a story, uh, the history about who, what, when, how. Mm-hmm. And, but I guess the only thing we would look at, we looked at her, we'd think about what they call, what they call a squaw, you know, a female uh, indigenous person. We, when you call them, you know, that's kind of what she looked like to from the image that we had on in watching TV. Mm-hmm. But she would always tell us that, yeah, I'm part, we, I'm part Indian. But okay, what Indian tribe, Grandma? Didn't know. It's almost like it was, it was embarrassing. We you don't need to know this. It's mm-hmm. not important. Mm-hmm. But we, she spoke French, and when her sister would come to town, they would speak in French, French, and French. But they would never help let, let us learn it. Mm-hmm. Everything about her culture, it was like it was, you don't need to know this, not even important. Like, you know, you leave this behind you, you're moving on, you're an American now. Mm-hmm. That's kind of how, when I think about it, as I've gotten older. Yeah. Well, a lot of Indians, well, e- indigenous people were enslaved too at one time. You know, when, when, when the, um, they brought the enslaved people from Africa, they also enslaved indigenous people. 
And that's why they had a really certain alliance with African and Indians in early, in early um, colonial period of Louisiana. And so this has, um, you know, it's gone on through the years, so they intermarried and everything. Um, you had certain things like, well, the traditional healing practices, for instance, that one with being with the environment, um, religious practices, you know. So th there were a number of things that were uh, similar with the two cultures. And uh, you, I'm sure you heard of the story how the indigenous people would harbor the runaway slaves. They knew the land. They knew the country. It was a swamp land in New Orleans. And they knew the land. They knew how to survive that land. And, and, and the Africans, you know, they could adjust and they adapted, you know, so they, they harbored a lot of them, runaway slaves. Yeah, I, I hear a lot about that story going towards Slidea. A lot of it was hiding out mm -hmm. in the swamps. Maybe. But the other thing is the indigenous people are the, is, is the they, they help to keep the colony alive, the French colony alive in Louisiana. Talk about, talk about how to grow food, yeah, how to survive. How to survive the, the land. And um, they would come in and sell their produce in the French market. They would also come in and sell their produce in Congo Square. Many people think it was the Africans that started Congo Square. No, it was indigenous people. At that time, Congo Square was right behind New Orleans. New Orleans was the French Quarters. What we know as the French Quarters today was New Orleans. That That's, was it. That was New Orleans. That was the New French Orleans. The French Quarter was New Orleans. That was New Orleans. And Rampart Street was the back of New Orleans. And then that started, Treme was right after Rampart Street, plus then you have Congo Square. So they would come to the outskirts of the city to sell their produce. That was the outskirts. That was the outskirts. Most people, it's hard for them to believe these days, but that was the outskirts of the city, the French quarters. And they, not only would they sell their produce, but you know, you have the mixture of the languages now, you have the dances, you have the rhythms, you have the drumming. You know, you got the indigenous and the Indians. I mean, the, the indigenous people and the Africans doing all of these things. So all of this is coming together in one. And that, that's, that's, that, we look at that as the core of the city. Because not only the cultures were coming together, but the economy was coming together. They were, they were selling things. You know, this is, people think about jazz and the early on, all that came out of Congo Square. It was like the core of the city. It was, it was the behind the city. So you said the, the French Quarter, which I, I'm still, you said, but it's called the French Quarter, but it had Spanish architect. Yeah, well. I never understood that. But it, it burned. Uh, a large part of the French quarters burn. I forget the exact year, but then the Sp but then the Spanish were the colonial powers, so they of course build it back with Spanish influence. But you still have a lot of the French influence around. But yeah, a lot of it is Spanish influence because it was colonized by the French first, then the Spanish, then the British came in. So during that time, the quarters burned. It was the Spanish that brought it back during the Spanish period. Okay, so that was New Orleans, the French that, Quarter. That was, that, that, that was, was New, New Orleans. Orleans, yeah. The Bourbon Street was New Orleans. <laughs> That's why it's still a man's street, did <laughs> I didn't know that. So now let's kind of, uh, we spend a lot of time, I mean, you get excited and start talking about the Indian. I know you love your Indian. So let's get back to the... Oh, I was the, telling you about the documentary. Okay, documentary. Yeah, um, I'm doing that now because I thought there was a need to sort of feature the music. 
because the music is um, so important and because I look at the music, the Indian music, the rhythms, the drumming, uh, I look at that as being a strong influence on the early R&B of New Orleans. Now, that's a large part of the documentary, but I also look at the systemic resistance of the Indians because they always resisted the system. They, they said, we're not parading, so we don't need any permits. We're not doing that. We don't need permits. And so, you know, they just, they, we know, no, we don't need any floats. We can walk through the streets. You know, so they <laughs> we, did we, everything. We can, we can dance all the way through the streets. That's what they did. They don't walk, they go dance. Everything was kind of totally people, different. The, the other people need, they need the floats because they can't doing. dance. So let them do that. We going to dance all the way. <laughs> let them need a float. You know? Yeah. We, they they, they we, did We're we going to generate some streets. excitement here. Yeah. And, that, and, and they still do it. Yeah, they still doing it. That's right. And, and the other thing, I remember Bodalas, which was a, an Indian a big chief, uh, told me once, you know, he passed his past now, but he told me once, he said, well, you know, they wouldn't let us come on the Canal Street and St. Charles to see the parades. So we just decided we're going to make our own parades, you know. We do our own thing separate from them. We, you know, so, and that's what exactly what they did, you know. They say, but, we, but, but, uh, but all the excitement was over there where they were at, so now they want to include them. Yeah. yeah, it's turned around. <laughs> it turned around a whole lot. Yeah, but, you know, but again, resistance. It was discriminatory practices. They wouldn't let the blacks go in there. They couldn't, you know, they couldn't go on this street. You can't be the first ones to see the parade. You know, and just things like, even with Carnival, even with Mardi Gras, you know, it's discriminatory practices. So, again, that's how they okay. just resisted and did their own thing. Okay, now we're talking about discriminatory practices. I did a little research and I found out, how long have you been at, at LSU? 30, well, as a professor, 34 years. 34 years. You've been the lowest paid professor at LSU. You're going to go there. <laughs> For 34 years. I, is that the truth? I, I, I didn't say. I mean, you do a little research, you know, it comes up, you know. <laughs> so is that is that is that true? That that's a, that's a that's a discriminatory practice, or that just or you just didn't qualify to be up there with the rest of them? Well, it wasn't equitable. It was not equitable. Uh, I mean, what you mean by equitable? Well, yeah, you know, I was not getting equal pay, and most women at LSU don't get equal pay as the men. Not at LSU. You tell me. <laughs> they don't do such a thing. You said you're telling me that LSU do not pay the women the same as they pay the men. What's your degree? Maybe because you went to University of Indiana. <laughs> that that disqualifies you for for moving up. So LSU, you 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 was the you are or was the lowest paid even to this day. I was the lowest paid full professor. In my department, now that, that I do know. Up, up until when? Up until recently. Recently, recently, I mean, like ten years ago. No, as a, a few months ago. As a few months ago, you were still. <laughs> so now you're it's the all public knowledge. You know, Salary is the public knowledge. So now, no, well, I, I'm just saying right now. Uh, prior to, I was the lowest paid professor, lowest paid full professor in my department, even after, you know, one had come behind me. Even, even someone came years after you, still making more than you. Had. Yes. It's a, it's a yeah. male? Male. Mm -hmm. So that's a common practice? Then? Well, uh, 
women do tend to be paid less doing the same jobs. You know, definitely on university campuses, but in the corporate world too. Now you fight for reparation too, you know? <laughs> <laughs> or what they call that restitution? Which one is which one you want? So, go there. so, so uh, how can how can that be corrected? So as chair, can you, can you have any impact on making a difference? Well, I'm certainly going to try. Uh, tell, like I say all the time, it takes too much work trying. Are you going to do something? <laughs> <laughs> well, yes. Yeah. Okay. I am. So what, what are some things you like to do to, to uh, bring some justice and quality back? Well, uh, I would certainly like to uh, increase the reach in our department, and when I say increase the reach, I mean as far as as far as recruitment and you know engagement, retainment of students and faculty members. Um, because again, we don't have a good record in diversity. Your department does. My department does not. LSU has its first president. He came on before, right after you did. He was hired right after he did. Mm -hmm. uh, Dr. Tate, William Tate, Dr. William Tate, who's the first in the SEC uh, to be the president and the CEO of the University of African descent. Right. So that's that LSU has made uh, history. That's a major leap. So what you think about? Have you had a chance to speak with him? I haven't had a chance to talk with him yet. We had a forum last week, but you know it's a forum for all faculty, you know, who want to get on the forum. But it's basically to talk about the COVID uh, pandemic. Um, yeah. But in our department, I, you know, I would, I would just like to see some more uh, uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And um, and I, I look at diversity as. Um, not just being, not just looking at it demographically, but I look at it as being, uh, you know, having a diverse culture. So I mean, you 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 have it ingrained within the within the department, and not just to have the numbers there, but really aren't engaging with them, aren't not supporting them, and, and doing all the things you know that you need to do to retain people. So it needs to be a culture of the department, not just having the demographics, you know. And so I will work hard uh, doing that. I mean, I've done that at the university in my whole tenure being there, you know, where I could. Um, and so I intend to do more of that. I would like to see us, you know, be in a more diverse department and including uh, others um, and making them feel but welcome. What you like your legacy to be when you leave the department as the chair now? What would you like to implement some new things? Or? Yeah, well, I would really like to be a catalyst for institutional um, change um, and in that way continue uh, really make an impact with diversity, inclusion, and equity, uh, I just mentioned, um, and do that in various ways. And I mean, with faculty as well as graduate, as well as students, you know, undergraduate as well as graduates increase our numbers. You know, our numbers are low and it was low before COVID. So we can't, we can't blame COVID for low numbers and students, low um, number of, uh, students, um, enrolling and graduating. For as a diversity? Or just uh, well, students as a whole? Students as a whole. Yeah. We, you know, our numbers are kind of low right now. 
So I like to build those up as well as the diversity part. So it's hard to get students to to enroll in anthropology? Well, I, I would, you know, a lot of times you have to let them know about it. And it's not hard to get them enrolled. I mean, I, I think our anthropology numbers up more than others, but, um, but on both sides, geography and anthropology, I would like to increase the enrollment. Do y'all do many outreach programs? Do do well, that's one of the things that I want to do more of. We have done some, but I would like to do more outreach in the community and going into the high schools and talking about these disciplines. Because, I mean, we got geography and maybe, I don't know, fifth or sixth grade or something like that. We never got anthropology, you know. So I, I have done that already, but I would like to see more of the faculty members out, do an outreach program to the community because it, students need to know. You know, most of them don't know about the disciplines before they come to college, and a lot of them will take it as, say, for instance, an elective or their social science requirement, and then maybe they'll get interested in it and you know say, I think I want to go on and have a um, you know get my degree, my bachelor's. So that department there for ninety three years. So that means it's a pretty old department. Mm-hmm. We have not had a major impact on the... Yeah, well, yeah, it has had a major impact. I'm just saying now I would like to increase the impact. You know, I mean, we have a lot of uh, graduates that have gone on and done wonderful things in various parts of the world, you know, but I would like to see it happen more. Now, now one day I was talking with you, you told me a very interesting story that I think... Need to be repeated because it's, it's just so it's funny and very entertaining, and it shows you how diverse you are too, and how how much you love your people, you love your community, and you willing to do anything to uh, support, uplift your community. But you told me about told me a story about uh, you love your music, although you couldn't sing gospel music. You know, <laughs> when you went to, you attended LSU, but you had a friend who had a. a a record store that he had passed, and you you have to be out of town, and you wanted to collect the music, but it, the children was throwing it, throwing it away. You remember that? Story? Yeah. Tell, tell that story, right? Quick. Yeah, it was um, it it was uh, it, it was a music store, but they also supplied a lot of the uh, regalia for churches and choirs, Bibles. Uh, what, what music store was it? A Heron's music store. And um, it was, you know, I I would go there and talk to the person that owned it. And he was, you know, he was getting older and he wanted to retire. He wanted to close up the store. And I, you know, I encouraged him. I said, well, before you close it, let me talk to LSU about buying the collection. Because we have a a music uh, library within the large uh, university library. So I said, well, let me talk to LSU and see if I can get them to purchase the music. I said, they probably don't want the Bibles and the Sunday school class materials and all of that. They had communion, <laughs> things you use for communion, the whole bit. He used to supply that to the National Baptist Convention, which most people don't know. They think it's mostly folks in Chicago. But no, we had this little store here in Baton Rouge that supplied a lot of the uh, materials um, for, for, um, for churches. And so I went to Ghana, uh, another one of the abroad programs that I uh, led, and he died while I went to Ghana. And one of my uh, friends knew that I had been, you know, 
connected with him and, you know, wanted to um, get LSU to, to buy his uh, collection. And she, she contacted me. And, well, I got back maybe two days after the funeral. And I was able to get the number of his relatives, called them to find out, well, where is all the, all the materials that were in the store? They say, oh, we got a dump truck and had them to take it to the dump. I thought you did what? <laughs> I, I said, okay, which dump did they take it to? They gave me the name of the truck, the number of the dump truck, and they told me what dump they took the music to. I got my dad, got, he had the pickup truck. You pulled your, your dad into And this. I got my dad <laughs> to go with me. I had my boots on, I had me some gloves. <laughs> And I went to the dump to dig out the music. You know, that was so important because not only was the guy that owned the store, not the second, this is the second guy that owned it that I was able to talk to. The first one who was the actual composer and the owner of the store had already passed. But he composed a lot of gospel music. Then he actually printed gospel music for other composers and arrangers of gospel music. So he had all of this in his shop. He had a printing machine. He actually printed the music in his shop, and they threw it away. They just, you know, this is some of their relatives. They just wanted to bury him, get rid of all the stuff, and go back to Chicago, wherever they came from. They actually had all that taken to the dump. So I went to the dump, and I asked the man. I said, okay, I got a pickup truck. I got a bread. He said, lady. Can't let you in the dump. <laughs> he said, that's dangerous. I said, why am I on gloves? I got on my boots. <laughs> he said, I'm sorry. I can He said, another truck has dumped on top of that truck that came. I said, he said, I can't let you in there. I said, yeah, but I got help. My dad's here. <laughs> you pulled your dad, you pulled dad into that. Eh? <laughs> and man, with that, I was, I was literally, I mean, I was actually sick. I mean, my stomach was upset. My system was upset. I was, I was just upset. You, that so, they you had, wanted to go get that music. I wanted to. I was going to dig for that music. I was not thinking about. I was thinking about getting that music. <laughs> this is sheet music, vintage music, <laughs> gospel music. That composers, black composers, had, you know. I don't know where else that I could have found that. All that together, right there in that shop. I was so, you know, I had gotten some, and I got one of the guys, another black guy that was in the music school, I, you know, I told him about it. He got part of the printing press. He actually got some of the, the I don't know what you call them, but they, they had the they slates they, they, that you print on. He got some of that. He got some music. He was a musician in music school. And so I got him to go in and get some. We were buying the music from him, and he was selling it to us for the prices that you paid for it 30 years ago. And then I would give him some more. I said, but I could get LSU possibly to buy this from you so we could put it in the, the, the music library. Archive. And archive it. You know, I, I got students who could catalog it, and we could archive this music and, and, and put it in LSU's it library. It all got thrown away. You know, in the dark. Except what I had already bought from him at another time. I had Each time I go, I'd buy something. I bought a big print Bible, <laughs> you know. I'd buy something every time I go. And that's how I got some of the music. But he had tons of music 
that people probably didn't even know was there anymore, wasn't interested. Just People just didn't know it was there. And it went to the dump. I was just, I was just, oh, I was just upset. Too upset. That man would not let me get that music. <laughs> you was mad at that man. I was man. mad at that man. <laughs> if you he thought said, you could have whooped him, you would have He said, man, I can't let you. And that, they would take my job. <laughs> let this crazy lady go into the dump and dig for music. <laughs> you take your business seriously. Oh, huh? I, yes, indeed. I mean, that's, you know, it's, that was a treasure. You know, that was a treasure that we could never get back. You know, these are black composers of gospel music. You know, you know how much people would pay to get that today? Or just to study it, just to go in the library and use it and study it. It was gone in the dump. I was really upset. I mean, it took me a while to get over that. I really, it, it just. Where, where we, we, we could feel the pain even at, at this point in time. <laughs> So that, that was a traumatic experience. It was a traumatic you. experience. Mm. Mm. But what, yeah. what about the experience that I heard one time that you said that when you was in college or coming out of college that you wanted to travel through Africa? <laughs> oh, that's it. really going back. <laughs> I mean, you you had the opportunity to travel, but you wanted to do it. You had a whole other picture. Though. Yeah, well, you know, I knew I wanted to, to travel through, through Africa, West Africa, but I wanted to see some of the other areas, too. And I don't know, I always had this dream, a vision about me traveling through Africa with my backpack and my baby. Well, you know, I figured at some point I was going to have a baby. <laughs> at some point in my life, I would have a baby, but that baby was going with me wherever I went. And so I saw my baby in my backpack or in my, you know, you, you know how the African women have their babies wrapped around them, you know, you wrap them. And they put them on their stomach and then have my backpack on. I saw myself traveling through Africa like this. You <laughs> the baby? No, I didn't get the baby. Got the backpack? <laughs> I got the backpack. <laughs> how, you, how you got the backpack? It's interesting. I used to talk to my mom and dad about it. And I gave it to them. Oh, this job is crazy. <laughs> <laughs> But they bought me the backpack. Oh, they brought the backpack. Oh, that was so a sweet. A really huh? nice leather backpack. You just packed it with food, I guess. Huh? I packed it with books and papers and so, well, my how, camera. How did that vision come about? Just, I don't know. I get, you know, like I said, I do. At some point, I'd probably have a baby, and I would take my baby. You know, my I could see myself traveling the world. Just you and your baby. Yeah. No man. I mean, the no man, man would be fine, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you just never know. <laughs> <laughs> I was hoping the man would be there, yeah. but you know. But if not, you, 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 you had plans for you and your baby. Yeah, my baby was coming. <laughs> and I guess I was always been a student of culture. And, and basically, you know, cultural, you know, African culture and culture of African descent, but I wanted to see what the world looked like. So I wanted to go to Europe. I wanted to go to, you know, so, you know, South America. I wanted to go to other places too. And um, but, I you, just, but you wanted to end up, you wanted to be in Africa first. Yeah, Branch yeah. Out from there. Yeah. You call it, you know, you call yeah. I think I go to the motherland, you know. So and then I go from there. <laughs> I mean, that's that's just a vision you as a as a young 
woman you just that just came to you? Yeah, and I don't know. I have no clue because you know my my parents weren't you know all into African culture, and still I start bringing it to them, you know. So I feed them back. I don't know where it came from, you know, reading books and stuff, you know. And, and you and uh, Dr. Durant, also, y'all helped start the... Well, he did the, he did the first one to Ghana, and uh, I was doing them to, to Senegal. So he was going to Ghana, I was going to Senegal. And y'all was taking the students. Right, we were taking LSU students. I did three um, study abroads in uh, Senegal with LSU students, and I did... One in Ghana, it was basically a service project where I took nine LSU students to Ghana and we did service projects and then we had the class that spring semester where they brought in all that they had learned and, and interviewed and observed in Ghana. I had, and it was interdisciplinary, it wasn't just anthropology students. I had two medical students that you know shadowed some doctors at a public health center in Ghana and we were in Anloga, which is uh, a rural area. Um, we went into Accra for a few days, and then we went into Anloga and did the, the service projects. Most of them worked at schools, but I had two that were pre-med students. They actually worked with medical doctors, so it kind of shadowed them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I remember the story of one coming to, to, to me, and they said, Dr. Jackson, you know, all, all the, um, oh, where do you put the dead people? All the, um, um, the morgues are full. I said, really? Yeah, they are full. And I'm thinking, okay, maybe I need to go talk to these doctors. Is there a disease going on or, or what is happening? So I went to talk to them. I said, oh, no. You know, most families have to wait to have the funerals because it has to be a community funeral. So you have to have a certain amount of money. Um, and, you know, it's just a lot that goes on. So, you know, it's another ritual. So I started, that's when I started kind of looking at funerals because it's, um, it's a ritual, it's a community ritual, and it's just very different. You know, it, they advertise funerals. Uh, and people from the, around the community would come and, uh, you know, they do the dancing and the ancestors, you know, <clears throat> do the circular dances around the casket. And so it's, it's a, again, another ritual. And uh, so I said, oh, okay, uh, that makes sense. So, so, all, so, so, so like you, the New Orleans. Yeah, it's, it's the same thing. Like, you know, like we have jazz funerals in New Orleans. They have funerals too. They don't call it, of course, jazz funerals, but there is, the music is there, the dancing, the drumming. And, um, you know, you have a lot of food. One man, and I was invited to funerals. I didn't know the people, but they invited me. This is the elder of the community, so you here during read, you got to come. And so we would go to the funeral, and the man was so important, he's the elderly guy, that they had two funerals for him in one day. So you got the big funeral over here, and then you got another smaller funeral over here. And so we went to the big funeral, because that's where all the drumming and dancing and singing and, the, you know, the the, 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 the Folks that were representing the ancestors were dancing around the casket and all of this. And, I'm, and they just let me film, you know, because I had talked to the priests. I had interviewed priests. I go, went there to do healers, too. But I, I that's not interesting. But anyway, they, they let me come and they let us film. They let me take, let Nash take pictures, you know, and 
uh, I had never seen a fish. So four hours we were there, and it was just getting started. <laughs> that sounds like a normal thing in Baptist church. Huh? <laughs> that that, that sounds normal to me. We wanted to kind of go to the other funeral so I could compare the two, you know. So then we started ease on out of the big one and went to the smaller one over, you know, the way. And it was the same thing going on. And I'm, you know, I'm trying to figure, well, how the family? You know, they got some of the family over here, some of the family. It was, it was, a, it was an interesting thing. But that was why the morgues were full because you keep, you can keep bodies for months, not just days or weeks, months. But you have to wait because this person has to come back home. When they come home, they have to have money. You have to have a whole lot of food to feed the the, the community. You you know you have to pay the people who are going to act as the ancestors. You got mourners, so everybody has their part. It's like a theatrical event. So you got to have the money to take care of all of this, so them bodies could stay there for six months. <laughs> yeah, you know you certainly can't open them after the, you know that. Uh, but yeah, that that's that's why the morgues were full. So that was a pretty interesting. But also, you had uh, you wanted are you one of the members to help start the Triple AS on LSU campus? Yeah, I was there with with Tom Durant. Um, what, what is the Triple AS? Coffee African and African American Studies Program. It was a program for for. 20 some years, 26, 27 years. It just became a department. It just became a department this, this uh, past spring. And uh, I worked with that. Well, I, I was a director for six years. So that's, that's my affiliation. No matter what else I'm doing, I'm still affiliated with the AAAS program. Well, department now. So the dean asked me to work with him. And, and uh, the, the current director, uh, chair now, Stephen Finley, uh, to um, to bring it into departmental status. So, uh, and Lori Martin, who is now a associate dean, but she was the interim um, director while it was uh, a program this last year. And um, so we're still there and we're still pushing. And, you know, it's a lot to do for a new department, you know, but um, it's coming along pretty well. But y'all started a department, how long ago was that? In 94. In 1994. Mm-hmm. Not, 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 not the program. program. In 1994. Now, who, who were some of the, the members at that time who helped get it started? Oh, Tom Durant. He's one of the major ones, major person. Dr. Tom Dr. Durant. Dr. Tom yeah, Thomas Durant. And uh, Dr. Kofi Lamote. Uh, he was there. And, uh, you know, a number of, a number of other people. Uh, you know, it, it, again, you know, we didn't have a lot of professors that were in African-American studies at the time. We were all, you know, in different disciplines, but we came together to, to make that happen, you know. Who was Dr. Durant's driving force behind that at that time? Dr. Thomas Durant was a driving force, yes. And he and, um, and Lamote, too. Yeah, so. Although the doctor retired, but he, he, got, he still lived long enough to see it become a Oh, yeah. A he's, he's emeritus, but he still is a department. I mean, he's still... You know, it's affiliated very, very closely with the department. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he's very active with us. Okay, so now uh, we, we talked about you becoming the first chair and you having a, being a female. And you say you like to see the department move into more diversity. Mm-hmm. And 
and bring in more students, but what about the students of, like you who never don't know what the, the geo, yeah, what do you call it there? Public Geography and anthropology? Yeah, who don't even know what, what that is. So well, that's why I say that. And looking at outreach programs, too, I would like to have more professors to go into the high schools to talk about these disciplines because a lot of them don't even know. You know, they may have heard the name anthropology, but really don't know. And even with geography, there are so many sub-disciplines of geography that, that people can work with and that students, you know, are not aware of. So it's very important to have these outreach programs where we can um, make students aware of the possibilities in the department. I'm going to make a suggestion. Uh, since you're the chair and I figure I got, uh, I want to be able to help, help a sister out, help mm -hmm. you to kind of make the right connection. By me being a former athlete at LSU, mm -hmm. the, number one, the top thing that LSU is really good at is in, in, in the football department, you know what that is? What's that? Recruiting. <laughs> well, maybe you can help us in the light of recruiting. <laughs> so, if the football department, uh, baseball, basketball get to recruit, why can't the... Well, of course, we don't have the funding that the football and the baseball and the basketball well, areas have. <laughs> well, they got the fund because they figured out how to also recruit, but to generate them some excitement around these recruits that people wouldn't become paid to participate and watch these recruits perform. Mm -hmm. So you, your department don't do any type of performance going on? <laughs> ain't nothing happening that go draw the people to come and pay? Uh, no, we don't have any performances that we do. We do research and we present our research. Well, that's kind of boring. That's you like, got something else no, to do? <laughs> that's more exciting than your department where you're going to get some students to come in. Well, we don't have performance. We perform you, you just told me the story. Right. You told me the story about the New Orleans Indians. Mm -hmm. They decided, well, no, we don't want to be part of the uh, the, the, the Mardi Gras stuff. We're gonna just do our own thing. And they, so they started their own little performance. They drew crowds of people to follow them. Mm -hmm. So this is a way of making the example. Well, maybe we can talk about this. Then. Well, I'm, I'm getting some <laughs> insight now that maybe I can help y'all to build a great department and generate some excitement. Well, Doc, I'd like to thank you for joining us today on Count Time. It was a joy, a pleasure, and you've been a treat. And you're very exciting, enlightening lady in your travels. And a lot of great things that you've been part of that you was able to share with us. And I just feel honored to be a part of your history in a lot of ways by hearing your story. But it's just been so good and it's so wonderful to hear your travel, hear what you are, what you went through, but to see where you are now. Mm. And you're still smiling, laughing, and youthful as ever at this day and time. And yeah. you need to be because, you know, you, how you say that? You stood the time. Yeah, I stood the time. <laughs> you're still a young lady, but you stood the time. And we thank you for, for joining us on Count Time. Well. Thank you for having me. It's really been a pleasure having the conversation. Now always remember this here. Man can shackle the hand. Man can shackle the feet. But only you can shackle the mind. The mind is always free to travel wherever you dare to take it. And I'd like to thank you for tuning in once again to Count Time Podcast. I'm Brother L. D. Zobra. Thank you once again. Remember, it's 4 p.m. Stand up. It's count time. Time for every man and woman to stand up and be counted.